0: to mention this during the show but uh, I'll I figured I might as well throw my little self-plug thing at the beginning um, if you're listening to this on one of the big podcast platforms and you aren't following the show already uh, please follow the show you can get up to date with new episodes even before uh, I sound the alarm if you're enjoying what you're hearing uh, please leave uh, a review letting us know how I'm, how I'm how how I'm doing not us this is a me thing Um you know, I, I really value all feedback on the show, and I want to make this show the best show it can be. Well, maybe not the best show it can be, but a good show nonetheless. Um, we're on social media, in case you haven't followed us, uh, Instagram, where I post all the artwork for the shows, uh, so that's Fans on the Run podcast, uh, Twitter is Fans on the Run pod, Facebook is Fans on the Run podcast, and uh, yeah, that's that's about it. Anyways, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the show today. Uh, we, we got a good one for you today, so I'm going to try and keep this uh, rambling as brief as possible. Um, you, I, I've said before with a lot of guests, um, you know, they've, they've done so much work that I can't even name for once just this once, I'm actually going to try and name everything. He's worked on albums and reissues for people like The Beach Boys, The Bee Gees, The Kings, The Monkeys, The Band, Elvis Costello, Big Star, Chris Bell, Dan and Jean, The Circle, The Left Bank, Love, The Pretty Things, Elton John, The Troggs, Wayne Fontana, The Mindbenders, P.F. Sloan, The Everly Brothers, Manfred Man, Three Dog Night, The Zombies, Gene Clark, Tom Jones, The Turtles, Tommy James and the Chondells, Harry Nilsson, and the Easy Beats, just to name a few. He has a weekly radio show on Mondays, 3 to 5 p.m. Pacific Time, called Come to the Sunshine, on WFMU's Rock and Soul. He's the author of The Monkees, the day-by-day story, which has been incredibly well-received in the past few months. Oh, yeah, and he manages The monkeys. Please welcome to Fans on the Run, Andrew Sandoval.
1: Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ethan. It's really cool for you to invite me on here. I'm pleased to be with you today. Oh, well, it's, it's very cool of you to accept my
0: <laughs> invitation to be on the show.
1: Well, I know when I started out writing about music and I was I was really young and uh, too young for the kind of stuff that I really liked, you know, every everything I was doing, people were like, oh, you're, you know, you weren't around for this or you weren't around for that. And I always, people made me feel bad. And so I've always sort of gravitated towards trying to um, help people who were younger than me get into the same stuff. I figure we all share the same passion and it's not predicated on what uh, date you were born. It's just what your enthusiasm level is for the stuff. And sometimes you can experience art and have a great love for it outside of the period in which it was created. And in fact, view it a lot more organically than if it was something that you had to be uh, fielding all of these other outside influences with, you can look at it on its own and have a really nice view of it. So
0: wouldn't life be just much more miserable if, uh, you know, say, if you're born after blah, 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 1961, you can't listen to the Trogs.
1: Right. No, for sure. And and I think that I, I've never understood that mentality, but I also feel like the baby boomer generation, and here I am generalizing just like they would generalize my generation or your generation. You know, there were, they were spoiled for choice. If you look at the charts in the 1960s, you had all of these great things to listen to things that were on the charts, things that were off the charts, you know, had popular music, soul music, country music, great country music in that era, all kinds of stuff going on, and um, yet there would be all these rivalries. Well, if you like the Rolling Stones, you can't like the Beatles. It's, you got to pick one of the two. And if you like the Monkees, well, you have terrible taste. You can't like Herman's Hermits. They're horrible. I've had older people who were like, would be like have the veins popping out of their necks just being so angry about talking about Jerry and the pacemakers who let Jerry and the pacemakers on the radio. That wasn't the blues. You know, It's just like what the three minutes that Jerry and the pacemakers took up out of your life hurt you that much that people get so passionate about that stuff in, in the wrong way, they get angry. And my whole thing with music has been, I just love to learn about it and everything I hear, even the stuff I don't like kind of informs me in some way. I learn a little bit of, about where the music I do love comes from and it. And it's a, it's a fun journey. I,
0: I agree with that 100%. And there's, there's no better feeling in life than, you know, just discovering more and more music that's out there that you feel like, I feel like I should have heard this so long ago. This is, this is me.
1: I am so grateful that there's stuff I haven't heard so long ago. I'm still finding stuff and that makes me happy for the future. I mean, if I, woke up and knew everything, I mean, there'd be no fun left, right? I mean, if you knew
0: everything, you'd have the upper hand when making those compilations, right?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Because, you know, that's to say that your taste is the ultimate and perfect. And I don't think that anybody should really say that. I think everybody needs outside influences. And and I think that a lot of people have helped me along the way. I've I've listened and looked at a lot of stuff. And it's inspired me in how I put together my compilations and also my radio show. So I, I just... We need other people. And we, need, we need to keep exploring and learning. Uh, do you have any
0: specific influences in mind in your uh, quest to
1: make compilations? Um, you know, obviously, I think um, Nuggets from 1972 was was the big first compilation that that spotlighted stuff from the past in the way that I like to do now. It, it analyzed stuff and, and showcased it in a different way, took it out of its just its stock thing. But, you know, I do a lot of single artist stuff and, and stuff going over just albums and things like that with, with uh, one artist. And, you know, it's hard to say that I'm inspired by anything but nuggets as far as compilations. But I, I don't think anything I've done has ever mimicked... Nuggets in quite the same way, other than it's been in that in that genre of multi-artist and looking for combinations of songs. Uh but that's probably the biggest influence yet. Because I,
0: I see a lot of the the nugget style, the it, was it Lenny Kay who did the original?
1: Yeah, and it's a really profound compilation if you consider that in 1972 he was eulogizing music from about five years earlier, '66, '67. And it's like I can't imagine coming to you and saying, you know what I got to do is I got to do this compilation of stuff from 2016. There's a lot of nuggets buried in there from 2016 to be like, what do you mean 2016? Like, what are you talking about? And I can't imagine the people in the 70s, how they received that, uh, that, you know, when he pitched the idea. But it's a brilliant one and certainly one that has, has resonated on, you know, 40, 50 years on. So... Uh so yeah it's that's that's the one that starts it all really In terms of influence
0: like num- Nuggets is at the top followed maybe by you know the Rubble stuff from the 80s with Phil Smee.
1: Right Yeah there's Rubble and Pebbles and and all those other ones and I I I don't claim to have all of those I've gone and tried to find my own uh Nuggets and Rubble and Pebbles out there in the world on on 45s and kind of got into uh, an end of things that p- people weren't as excited about initially, which is sort of the sunshine pop world, um, psychedelic pop, stuff that wasn't as heavy, um, stuff that was more produced, sometimes overproduced. Uh, and there was a lot of that 30 years ago when I got serious about collecting some of these things that was just laying uh, fallow in the, in the uh, bargain bins. Uh, when I first heard the Sagittarius album Present Tense, that was uh, a record I bought as a cutout. Somebody suggested to me uh, at the store I worked at, Rhino, and it really changed my life. And I thought, wow, there's this whole world of this music, and there's a there's a lot more. And I still, every week, I discover more in that sort of uh, in that sort of genre. So it's um it's amazing, and and I I think that probably there are people out there. You know, you can find your own uh, nuggets out there. Your your own Different things that are are you know not necessarily what's already been discovered.
0: How how long have you been on your personal quest to find your own
1: nuggets? Um, I have been on my personal quest probably since I was about four years old. <laughs> I know that sounds uh, apocryphal, but when I was four, I became interested in the Beatles, and when I say interested, like obsessed—an uh, obsession that really hasn't ended for me ever, and and I'm hoping it never ends. And I just wanted to consume anything information-wise or music-wise related to The Beatles. And I think I listened to The Beatles almost nonstop from the ages of 4 through 10 years old. And the only things that kind of broke up that I'd listened to a group called The Monkees a little bit. Uh, But their records, I had had four or five of their albums that my father had found me um, in the 70s. And I saw their TV show. And those records I've, I filed away for later uh, later appraisal. But I, I like those records. And then um, around... It came in handy down the line. Yeah, yeah. And then around the time I was like 10 or 11, believe it or not, I was listening to a radio show, uh, uh, Dr. Demento, you know, who played oh. novelty songs and stuff like that. And I heard this band called Bonzo Dog, uh, a doodah band. And I was like, I like that music. Boy, that's very tuneful. I, I heard it was a Neil Innes song. And little did I know that he was capable of writing songs as melodic and perfect as Paul McCartney in my estimation. So I got into that and those were really hard records to find at that period. Do you remember
0: what song that was you heard on Dr. Demento? Yeah,
1: actually I do. It was, it was the weirdest one. It was a uh, King of Scurf, which is like a Beach Boys, uh, ripoff. I, I oh. wasn't old enough to understand that even like that was a takeoff on the King of Surf, but, uh, But I loved the the melodicism, and then I went to store, uh, the Rhino Record Store, and I got the history of the Bons of Dog Band. It was like a two LP set. Yeah. And I listened to that a lot, and that had a lot of great cuts. And then I wanted to hear, you know, I always would look at the lists in these books of the discographies of these people. Oh, well, now i got to hear this record, that record. But those were hard records to find, but I did eventually find all the albums. The hardest one to find at the time was Tadpole's. That was the last one I found. I remember pills. that, but I got those records, and then slowly I actually was getting into some more modern music that was happening around the nineteen eighty two, eighty three, eighty four in that era. I, I liked uh, Squeeze and Elvis Costello and The Jam, and uh, I start collecting Madness. I've got a huge collection of records by Madness. I consider them to be one of the greatest groups of songwriters, uh, next to you like heard the it first, yes.
0: Andrew Sandoval is a fan of the old Two-Tone.
1: Yes, and I have a massive collection of it. If you, people think like, oh, well, you must have a huge monkeys collection. It's like, you should see my collection on Madness. I have insane stuff. I belonged to their fan club while they were still together. I used to write to their fan magazine. And I uh, collected all kinds of crazy posters and promotional items. And uh, I love them to this day. And uh, A few weeks ago, I was in London and I got to see them with Squeeze opening up for them. Squeeze are another of my favorite bands from that era. So I liked a lot of the modern music. And then around 85, 86, you know, even that was not as exciting to me. I I found that a lot of stuff I liked, like Elvis Costello and um, the jam, uh, you know, and, and some of the people i mentioned, they covered a lot of songs from the 1960s. Like when I saw Elvis Costello in 1986, and he covered King Midas in reverse by the Hollies. I was like, oh, I really like that song. And then he was doing Everly Brothers songs like Sleepless Nights and things like that. So I would start saying, oh, I like that. I want to hear that, and I want to hear the original. And I started collecting those records and getting to the Hollies. And um, a band I got into through my brother around 1983 was the Kinks. I went to see them live. uh, and they, They were very popular in 1983. They had a big hit come dancing. But I went, and the record I could afford by them at the store was a cheap compilation of their sixties music. And I'm still thinking about that. You know, I, 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 I love the kinks so much. They're my second favorite band in the world. After I, the I'm Beatles. a total kink stork. I want to, do you remember <laughs> what comp that was? Yeah, it was uh one of the PRT compilations. It was like the 20, 20, greatest hits type of thing. Actually, you know, the record though, by the kinks that really changed my life. Um, that was not an original one, but was a compilation. Was called Golden Hour of the Kinks. Golden Hour. Of the I got a really the the drugstore in my town, which I, I I'm from Los Angeles, but I grew up in a smaller suburb. Um, they had this rack with really cheap cassettes, and I mean these cassettes would probably break on you the minute you bought them, but they were like two or three dollars, and they had a lot of the Kinks albums from imported from like Spain or somewhere that they had dumped off these cutout things. So. I was getting all the kinks records, but I, I first started with golden hour of the kinks and I was fascinated by animal farm and some of the other things that were on that. And then I realized, well, the album I've got to hear this village green album. I was reading about it, read all about it in the books I could find. And I had to drive a couple hours away to find a copy of that. And that record blew my mind and still does. So, um, it's all That's these something you I have in common. Yeah. I
0: also had to drive a couple hours to get my copy of Village Green. Oh, yeah. Bought it on
1: an online auction website by mistake. Oh, okay. Well, you know, it's such a great record, no matter how you get it. Um, uh, I think it's the record of my lifetime. I mean, you know, uh, it's such a gift, uh, that album. It's my all-time favorite album. So kind of jumping
0: forward a bit, Um, I I was going to kind of segue into it more naturally, but now we're talking about Village Green. Uh, You worked on the, uh,
1: was it the 2004 three CD? Yes. I worked on that. And then I worked on the the 50th anniversary of the 2018 multi-disc box set too. So, um, you know... Working on the Kinks is a, a dream come true in so many ways. I had uh, grown up listening to the Kinks and collecting their records and get, got turned on to them by my brother, as I mentioned. And then got he was more into the 70s and 80s Kinks, and I got yeah. way, way deep into the 60s Kinks and collecting those records. And we would still go to see them together, and I would always be like hoping that they would do more of their sixties material and their concerts and then um, come on Harry rag <laughs> yeah, well, we'd be lucky to get till the end of the day, which was still amazing, um but you know, or like a tiny little bit of milk cow blues or something like that. they would Ray would always toss in like a bar or two of something to tantalize the audience and then move on to think visual or whatever they were touring at the time Myself, but I'm lucky to have seen the kinks a lot of times, so. Uh, and I and I like songs off those later records as well. But um, in the '90s, uh, I sort of start playing music myself, and I start doing these charity shows with a couple of friends of mine. And we did a charity show that was a tribute to uh, the Beach Boys or Brian Wilson, rather. And Brian Wilson showed up, and Alex Shilton showed up, and a bunch of other interesting people. And then we were going to do one that was a tribute to the Kinks, which we did, and. We talked Dave Davies into coming down, and this was before he was touring. And um, he showed up for rehearsal, and my band was there to play with him. And we he had asked to play uh, three songs, none of which were songs he sang originally, uh, which was interesting to me. He wanted to do Too Much on My Mind, which he had done live a, few, you know, a bit. But um, Dead End Street was another one he wanted to do. It was like these are not the Dave, I mean, these are great, some of my favorite songs, but they're not the songs that I dreamed about hearing Dave Davies sing, and he looked at me, he goes, you know, I didn't say that to him, I just was looking I was like, big smile, he goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do Susanna Still Alive. He goes, yeah. okay, what key What key do we play it? I go, in G. He goes, let's do it. And we played Susanna Still Alive, and he sounded great, he goes, okay, well, we'll start with that song, that's what we'll open with what other songs do you know? And so we started playing through and we did five or six songs that first night. And subsequent to that, we ended up, my band went on tour with him and recorded a live album called rock bottom. And we also did some recordings, re-recordings of some of his sixties stuff for a couple compilations with him and I playing a lot of the parts. So that was really interesting, but that didn't help me get involved with the kinkstree issues. That was just a sort of a sideline uh, to it. Uh, I got involved in the late nineties with some other uh, really talented Fans, uh, Doug Hinman and Russell Smith, and other people who were working on uh, the compilations, and then slowly over time, I got more and more involved, and eventually worked on the Village Green. And then uh, in two thousand and eleven, I met with Ray, and we started working more closely together on on stuff. So it's been a you know.
0: that, that's something I was uh, quite curious about. It's how how involved were Ray. And to some extent, Dave, with these uh, archival releases,
1: Ray is increasingly increasingly more involved uh, as time goes on so so he's very involved um, and, and, and he gets more involved in the tracklist. I mean, what I always have to remember is, as a fan and an outsider, you know, I just think, oh, I want everything." on these that I can put. And I always give him a lot more than, than can go on. So he can take stuff off. Cause he, he does like to take stuff off, but the reasons why he takes stuff off are very personal. And that's something that really struck me on village green. And uh, di- working on that because he finally approved us putting out pictures in the sand. I never understood why he didn't want to do that before, but he was, he explained to me, it was like, that's a, that's a song I really wrote for my daughter. And, it really wasn't meant for anything else but my daughter. And, you, you know, you have to start thinking yourself less as a Kings fan than just, like, more as a normal person. Like, oh, okay, well, I get that, you know. He said, you know, some of the stuff, some of these demos are just so personal. I, it, it brings up so many emotions. I, I don't know how I feel about letting everybody hear them. And then, you know, unless you're completely shut down <laughs> emotionally, you start to think, wow, you know, I kind of really want all this stuff to come out, but I really see where he's coming from. This is the guy who wrote all of these incredible songs about friendship and sentimentality and other stuff, the, the, the topics and themes of village green. And, you know, I would have wasted all of my time thinking about this stuff for all these years. If I didn't understand what he was talking about now. So I always, you know, take, take a step back when he comes and, and talks about this stuff, but a lot of the time we are not talking. Uh, a lot of the time I'm just creating stuff and putting it forward and other people are talking with him and, and, um, uh, and that's, and that's fine. That's the way a lot of reissues are done. You know, you go through management people or whatever else and artists have the reasons for not letting fans hear and have everything that they've ever committed to tape. Uh, I was going to ask, uh, something kind of like that,
0: but, uh, kind of stretching more towards all the reissues you've done. Uh, How do you balance um, being a fan and wanting the material with uh, producing a product that the artist
1: will accept? Well, the bottom line is that you have to have the artist be happy at the end of the day or else they're not going to approve it. So pulling some big drama on them and say, you don't understand they probably understand more than anybody and and they have to be okay with it and approve it in the end or else it's not going to come out. You don't win any favor by being uh, a jerk with them, I don't think. And sometimes it's a long game of, you know, opinions and things change. I mean, like, for instance, Michael Nesmith, um, for years I had hoped he would perform his country rock material live. And he told me in 2013, he said, you know, Andrew, I don't think I can sell any tickets or make any money playing country music. And I said, I think you're really wrong. And he's like, well, I don't know. And I said, I think you're the godfather of country rock. And I think Graham Parsons and Rick Nelson aren't around anymore. And you're the only one who can do the authentic country rock. He's like, well, right now I'm all about electronica. And I said, okay. And then, you know, five, six years passed. And he was like, you know what, I really want to do my first national band stuff. I said, fantastic, I'm ready. You know, I, it, you just, sometimes you have to let people have their time. And you have to realize that, you know, you being the biggest fan of it doesn't necessarily mean that you're right. Um, but I feel like the internet has empowered so many people now. They can make their own compilations, their own playlists, um, legally or illegally, and um, have the bragging rights and feel like they're the... They are the rulers of, of the castle, but there is something special about making that connection with an artist and uh, them actually appreciating, uh, your input, which they don't have to because they created the stuff for us and themselves. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that they, they, you know, they tap you on the head with the scepter, um, when village green was finished the 50th anniversary there was a party for it and i got to go in london i I flew over there i was invited to this party for my favorite record which is amazing and mick avery was there and dave davies who i hadn't seen in years was there and ray ray was sort of like hidden away in this back room and i um he spotted me and he came over to me and um and we just stood there and he didn't really say very much and uh he just looked at me and I said, well, I think it's really great. I think the record's really great. He goes, yeah, I haven't listened to it. Well, I've listened to it. Yeah. He didn't say, you know, but I kind of knew from, from all of the stuff that, that we had been through and also the, 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 the person on the vibe you get from village green is like, it's not about the actual words that you say. It's about what you feel. And I think that that in that moment, I, You know, I realized it wasn't cool to ask for a photo. (laughs) You know, people take pictures of each other, picture book, all this stuff about photography. It it takes away the moment. And I I think you miss the moment sometimes, too, in in those things. Uh, Fan interactions are really tough. And I've been on the other end of it with the monkeys, certainly, where people want to meet the monkeys and they wanted so much of the monkeys that they were never going to get from them because the monkeys could only give them so much. I mean, a lot of people when they had time with the monkeys would want to tell the monkeys their life journey and what led up to the moment when they get to meet them, you know, and how much they'd meant to them. But for the monkeys to kind of take in all of that, they would need their full attention and a lot of time. And sometimes the monkeys would only have like 90 seconds with these people. And by these people, I mean, very nice fans who've supported them for decades and also given everybody around them a really nice life too. So it's a diff, it's a difficult thing being a fan You know, you you want to make uh, an impression on the artist. You want to make a connection with the artist. But in a lot of cases, that's tough to do in 30 seconds or 90 seconds, which might be the only time that you ever get to speak with the person who's had such an impact on your life. And I think about that a lot, both being on the end of saying, I'm so sorry we have to go (laughs) when we're on the way to the airport or whatever and they're meeting people, and also being the, the person on the other end where I get to meet the person I'm in love with, you know, creatively or musically or whatever, have this affection for. But, you know, we're not friends. We're just we've made a connection through their music and they don't know me and I don't really know them. I've come to the conclusion that there's the art and the artist and that the artist is is a wonderful person, but you wouldn't want to necessarily leave them in charge of your houseplants or your cats. You know, they have other things that they're doing in their lives. They've got their other problems And their art is something apart from them they created that gives them comfort and gives a lot of other people comfort. So you can't place all this responsibility on them to be the be-all and end-all of your life. And so that's a tough lesson to learn for a a lot of fans, and including one that I've had to learn too.
0: Uh, Kind of one last thing in that uh, kink sphere Mm -hmm. before I kind of move on to other things. Okay. Um, So you you worked on all these... uh, deluxe editions uh, in the early 2010s of Mm -hmm. King's albums. Um, And something I noticed, and I think you've talked about in the past, there's a a little bit of an omission in that uh, lineup of albums. Uh, Was there supposed to be a a deluxe version of Kelvin Hall?
1: Yeah. I prepared Kelvin Hall um, to two disc set to go with all the other deluxe editions. And for whatever reason, He was passed over uh, by the people who were controlling the catalog at the time, which was Sanctuary. The person, you know, I get to do these compilations and I get to meet with Ray Davies and and have some interaction with them or whatever else, but I'm not ultimately working at the company. I'm working for the company, so all I can do is submit my ideas. So I submitted a two-CD version, and then that album was also, did I lose you? Okay, came back. Uh, That album was also subsequently left out of the Kinks in Mono, uh, the CD box set. So neither of these things were anything I had anything to do with the omission of. And there's no real reason why it was left out. There's no reason. It's not like Ray hates the record so much, and that's why it's not been reissued. It just was purely an omission on the part of the person who was working for Sanctuary at the time, who was in charge of the Kinks reissues there, who I worked for as an outside contractor.
0: That's a little disappointing.
1: These things happen, and those people have to—they go home and they lead their normal life, and they're not sitting thinking about the King's Live at Calvin Hall at night like I am. But yeah, I did remix re- the not record. Special like us. Yeah, it was really interesting. I went back to the original four tracks and I did a new mix of some of the stuff. Uh, it was interesting to hear what parts were real and what parts were fake on that record. Um, the only elements that exist for it now are. The, sort of the completed edit, edited versions of the songs. They don't have the outtakes or trims of, of things. So it was great to investigate that. I don't know if anything will ever come of it again. But, you know, if if something does and I can be involved, that would be fun.
0: Well, I, I'd really enjoy hearing what you you do to the Kelvin Hall because all of the versions I have of it sound terrible, <laughs>
1: it's an exciting live record though there's some exciting stuff too it's
0: it's so energetic and just you just get hit in the face with the sound
1: well it's one of those time machine things You, you know you you feel like if i had you know if i could go back in time and see the kinks um you know i might still be kind of disappointed in a way in 1967 seeing the kinks and you know they don't play most of the stuff that you know you're thinking about from something else or that or the singles leading up to other than you know sunny afternoon stuff like that it's still amazing to hear them but the kinks uh dave told me that their big thing was they they would always leave out some songs like whatever their current hit was they wouldn't play it just because they were the kinks so
0: um was, was there any reason behind that or was it just because no we're the Kinks?
1: i don't know what the reasoning behind it was but they're one of those bands that are sort of willfully perverse, you know, in, in the way they've gone about their careers. But they left behind so much great stuff. And and again, that record, I love the record to pieces, even, even with its flaws. But in the remix, it wasn't like I could completely change uh, the way that record sounded. It was pretty locked in certain things were live and certain things were overdubbed on the album. And you couldn't, say, just take the overdubs out and leave what was live because there was pieces missing and, and vice versa. So, um, it's pretty interesting.
0: That actually leads quite nicely into the next question. Um, you, you've worked on a lot of reissues over the years and I can only imagine, uh, the varying states of, uh, let's say archival quality of the tapes. Um, was there any release in particular that gave you the biggest headache dealing with this? Cause like, Oh, there's stuff missing. The tape's not in good condition. We can't find yeah. it. Yeah. That kind of stuff.
1: It's hard to have one that comes to mind right away. There's, there's no, I mean, I've always had issues. There's always things uh, where there's pieces missing. I've, I've never run into a record where, Oh, I have every single thing. Um, there's always some elusive thing. And sometimes it's the artist that has it and the artist doesn't want to allow it to be a part of things or th- there's contractual hangups or whatever else. Um, but there's never been a, a thing where it's just been impossible or, you know, I have gone to the ends of the earth to find things and waited and turned up stuff in weird places, all those sorts of things. But nothing springs to mind immediately that's an anecdote uh, that I can share, unfortunately.
0: Uh, well, um, kind of something along those lines um with a lot of the reissues you've done there's uh there's a fair amount of uh, bbc tracks Mm -hmm. how
1: are the bbc to deal with in in these types of scenarios well they're very easy uh to deal with as far as licensing is concerned i've never had any issues with them and i'm not the one who has to do the licensing so um i guess that's that's another factor, uh, but the people, the companies I work with, have never had any any uh, issues. Primarily, the stuff is sourcing uh, sourcing the material for the releases, and I've increasingly become involved in BBC projects. Uh, but it's also one of my personal passions and pastimes. I collect BBC transcription discs, which are actually government property, so maybe I shouldn't talk about it too much. But I went to a store uh, near me called Rockaway Records in Silver Lake. On uh, Christmas Eve one year, and I had was looking through the bins, and I found a BBC transcription disc, and it had been marked down, and it was like seven or eight dollars. So, and it had the Who and the King's on it. So that was my first what? one. I was like, oh, I got to find more of these. But all the ones I found subsequently have been hundreds of dollars. But I have found some, and I traded with a lot of people who had cassettes of them and now digital files and things like that. So I piece together my own archive of BBC stuff, and I regularly call on that. And there's also other BBC experts out there uh, who I tap for information and recordings that they might have come across off-air recordings and stuff. There's, There's always lots and lots of stuff to find. So currently I'm working on a Move BBC thing, and I've also contributed to a Honey Bus BBC set, uh, and those are those have been kind of stalled a bit because of the pandemic. But I would say probably off into next year, you might start to see those.
0: Hang on, did you just say you're working on a move BBC? Thing? Yeah,
1: so that and it'll be a multi-disc set. Uh, so it'll be more than has been issued before. It won't just be an upgrade of the material that has come out on. It was, the reissues of the move have been some great reissues. There's been tons of bonus tracks, and they have had a lot of BBC stuff, but we have some more BBC stuff that has not been heard a lot of off air stuff. So it's going to be quite a, uh, quite a collection. Is this through a uh, esoteric? I don't know. Uh, the it's, I'm working for the owners of the material, uh, bucks music and, oh. you know, I'll probably leave it to them to announce the, the content and the dates and yeah. all that stuff, which I'm sure are off. Don't want to steal their thunder. Yeah, exactly. That's what a lot of people write to me and say, why can't you just tell me what the track list is now and what date it's coming out and why can't you do it? And it's like, because I just work for these companies and they actually like to have me not say anything. And then they come and say, you know, they say, ta-da. And they get all this interest and they get the pre-orders. And if I sort of dribble, drabble out the information to the people who instant message me or do whatever, who are usually a lot of people are very nice, and then other people are very demanding. Like, why can't you do this for me now? It's like I'm at the grocery store, or I'm picking up somebody from the airport, or they don't understand. They think that I'm like the 24-hour trivia machine. It's like, why? I saw you were online and you posted about a cat. You should be answering my my question about some obscure fact that you don't necessarily know. <laughs> so, there are a lot of very demanding people, and then there are some extraordinarily nice people, and I appreciate people in general, because that's why I've been able to work. It's them buying the records and the books and all that stuff. So Uh,
0: Um, one last thing before I, I move kind of back to the subject of the show, the Beatles, I wish I could give you a medal of honor for finally putting back at, at, back in the nineties. One of your first reissue projects was a a troggs thing for Fontana
1: and you you got the Trogs tape out there. Right. That was something I was working for a guy named Danny Benair, who was in the band, the three o'clock. He was the drummer and he was working for uh, polygram music publishing at the time. And they had all these Dick James tapes. And so we went through them. We found a bunch of things and that was in the publishing tapes. And then I gave it to Bill Inglot, who is the compiler and producer of the Trogs, uh, archeology, I think it was called. And, uh, that's that's where that very long good fidelity version came out. Uh and it was it wasn't labeled the Trogs tape when I found it. It was like called like the Trogs Getting It Together or whatever, but found it in that archive at a publisher, gave it to Bill, and then subsequently was on on that. And I think there's a possibility of some more Trog stuff happening in the future I just heard about. So fingers crossed, I love the Trogs, I'd love to hear more.
0: Let's let's hope for one of these next few record store days. Glow-in-the-dark vinyl of just the Trogs tapes.
1: <laughs> well, I think there's, I there's some six. genuine outtakes still left to come out. So, uh, Including the song that they're working on at, in, during the Trogs tapes. That song Tranquility that they're trying to record exists as a as a finished song. So, And so it is called
0: Tranquility. Yes. Ironic. How about this Beatles? No. Uh <laughs> So I, I know you uh,
1: got to go to the premiere of the uh, or the L.A. premiere of Get Back. Right. My friend Alison Borod, who's got a great podcast, BC the Beatles. Friend of the show. She, a friend of your show and also uh, who worked as one of the editors. I had four editors on my monkey's book. And so she was one of them. Um, she invited me graciously and I couldn't believe my luck to get to go to an event like this. Uh, and so that was, you know, just one of those things you dream about or I've dreamed about since I was really young, you know, getting to go to a Beatles event like that. It was wonderful. What, what'd you think of Get Back? Well, I, I thought it was incredible. And especially, I mean, what I saw as a preview was great, but the, the Disney version of it was just so great because of the length and the amount of access, the material that the public got. You know, I'm used to being behind the scenes and seeing all kinds of stuff and hearing things that will never come out. And there is good reason for some of that. Some of it's just not ready for public consumption because it's not very good. It doesn't really serve the artist and whatnot. But with Peter Jackson's status as a, a successful director, neither the Beatles nor Disney you know, stood in his way to put out this lengthy version of it. And I was really thrilled by it because I learned so much and I got so much out of it. And it gave me the feeling that I had in the 1970s when I first heard the Beatles. And I felt like, I'm a Beatles fan all over again. Uh, you know, it, it sort of had me thinking about them day and night in a way I hadn't in, in ages. And I, I love that feeling, you know um, it's the Beatles I think are like maybe the greatest high of my life. Uh, I, I can't think of any other artist um, or thing in my life that has taken me on such an incredible magic carpet ride. Uh,
0: well, this will be a bit of a kind of a, a broad, vague question,
1: uh, but what do The Beatles mean to you? Wow, well, I think that a lot of my identity is wrapped up in The Beatles, and, and, and that's the thing I've always tried to make sure I didn't do. But I feel like so much of what I've tried to do in my life with um, just sort of values and, uh, fashion and look, there's, there's so many levels the Beatles work on and they sort of, to me, they're, they're vital to my life. I can't think of my life, what my life would be like without them. And I can't think of how all the other art that I appreciate so much, uh, would, which is not the Beatles would exist, uh, in the same way or, or would have been able to, uh, come forward. And that, you know, that goes for the monkeys and the Bee Gees and all these other things that came in the wake of the Beatles success. Um, certainly the Bee Gees were writing songs and doing stuff before, but would they have made such an impact if it were not for their association initially with the Beatles and, and the timing of their arrival to make that kind of music? And, you know, certainly the monkeys without a hard day's night, I don't think that they would have been able to sell that and it wouldn't have been the same kind of thing. And, and so many things like that. But to me, you know, it just their contribution to all of our lives, I, I think of, like, the Beatles' first U.S. visit and, the, and the, that moment where they step off the plane. To me, like, that's a, a religious, spiritual moment. I, I don't I don't really, you know, that's blasphemous to some people. But to me, it it is as important a thing it's like here the here here they come off down these steps to make everybody's life much better <laughs> you know i feel like my life got so much better the day i heard the beatles for the first time um i heard good day sunshine was the first song that i heard of the beatles that where i asked who is this And my father told me it's the beatles and then i wanted kind to of hear on that what was the first beatle record you ever owned well, I don't remember specifically because my parents. What happened was, I saw the Beatles. I, well, I saw, I heard the song Good Day Sunshine. They're playing it over the credits of a, a bowling show, like people bowling on television. And uh, you'd think, like, oh, they wouldn't be able to use the Beatles, but this is 1970, so I guess it didn't matter much. Oh, how the times have changed. Yeah, it was a local show. And I was like, what's this song? I really like this song. And my dad said, it's the Beatles. And then my parents sort of sprang into action. They're like, if you like that, you got to hear this song by the Beatles and they opened up their record cabinet and they had all their Beatle albums, but they didn't have all of the Beatles albums. They had a lot of Beatles albums, but I soon started looking on the backs of these Beatles albums, the U S ones. I say, there's a Beatles album called something new. I got to get that record. And then I would look in these books. It's like their album. Help has different songs on, on this British version and, and rubber souls. Like, All the British versions, those weren't in my world yet.
0: What's a Parlophone?
1: (laughs) Well, so I started collecting all kinds of stuff, and um, it was a very quaint thing in the 70s for, uh, for me. I went over to London for the first time and Liverpool in 1978, and at that time, there was no tourist industry for the Beatles. So when you went to Liverpool, there was no Hard Day's Night Hotel or magical mystery tour bus that took you around to the spots. You you know, you you went there and people were like, the Beatles? That's over with. You know, that was over with years ago. Why do you care about that? So what was interesting, we went into this record store there in Liverpool called Probe, and um, I was looking my parents said you could buy one Beatles single and there's this box and I was looking through the singles and this guy appeared in the doorway of the record store he was like being held up by the door jam. He was like sort of leaned in and they, they said, Hey Bob, these guys are from America. They're here cause they love the Beatles. And he goes, Oh, well take me over to the grapes, which is like this, this pub near the cavern, which probe was right near the where, where the cavern, the cavern was just rubble. It was a parking lot when I was there. Um, and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about the Beatles. And this guy was Bob Wooler who had been the DJ at the cavern club. So we just total chance meeting this guy. And he's like, you should meet my friend, Alan Williams. And so he called, he called Alan from a phone box and put us on the phone. And my parents took me over there and we went to Alan's home um, for tea. And he sold us a copy of his book, the man who gave the Beatles away, which I still have the book. I'm not sure if it's down here on the shelf, Um, but you know, all these stories sound kind of incredible because they're like, you know, why why would you meet these people and that early on? But we met Alan Williams and he later came to L.A., um, I think in 1979, and we drove him around for a day. He had gotten a free – he had gotten a very cheap plane ticket from Freddie Laker Airlines and um, was hawking some Beatle memorabilia and stuff. But um, – but yeah, that's that's where it started. We went, we walked over to Abbey Road, like everybody does now. But we met a news agent outside, and he said, "Oh, here's an autograph from Paul because Paul comes by here all the time. I always get him to sign things, so I have my autograph from there." My my mom had gone to see the Beatles at uh, Dodger Stadium, so you know, I instantly got into Beatles and collecting Beatles records, and just you know, uh, to this day, still just love. Finding stuff, and I'm still I'm still buying Beatles records and and things. Um, if I can put you on the spot,
0: what is the coolest Beatle record you own, in your opinion?
1: Okay, well that one is easy because the okay. following year I went back to London, and we were staying with uh we were staying at the home of a friend of mine I'd made in school who was from England. And it, it just so happens his parents owned a house outside of London in a place called Hayward's Heath. And the guy who was the care, caretaker of this house, because they mostly lived in Los Angeles, um, they mentioned to him, do you know of any record stores or secondhand record stores? Our son is looking for these Beatles records. And so he said, oh, let me have a think about that. He put up a little notice on at his work. I don't know where he worked at the time, but – There's a young man looking for Beatles records. If you have any ones you don't want anymore, you know I'll come by. You know, leave them on my desk, and I'll bring them to him at the end, end of the week. So we did that. It was 1979. Believe it or not, not everybody felt that they need to keep the Beatles records forever. So he gave me a little stack of original Parlophone 45s. And so the one out of that, which is probably the 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 one that I and I've had since 1979, there was a red Parlophone "Love Me Do," which I still have. Uh, after all these years. And so that's probably the best one. And and you got it for free? I got it for free, but also the Beatles records, you know, even then they were not that super valuable. Uh, uh, and that like they would be now. But I I cherish that because that, that magic of that and putting it on at home and listening to it, it's a different version, you know, a different recording. And to me, I was already interested in all that. Anything that was different, bootlegs, you know, that's how I ended up at the Rhino store was following this trail of bootlegs. Like this guy up the street from us who was older, uh, knew my um, brother and stepsister. And he had this Beatles bootleg and there was a live version of twist and shout on it. And this is the seventies. I was like, wow, where'd you get this? And he said, there's a store in Santa Monica uh, which is now like there's a, this promenade, but it, back then it was like just a pedestrian mall. And he said, it's called Apollo Electronics. It was like a Radio Shack type place. And we went there and one, you know, they had all the wires and resistors and transistors and all that normal stuff you see in the, you know, the, the uh, soldering irons and all that stuff. But then one wall of this place was just racks, you know, on the wall displayed of bootleg records. And so my parents said, you know, you can pick out one record. I mean, my parents were never like, you can have all the records. It's just like, you get to pick out one record. I think they bought, so I, pick, I picked out one Beatles record, Beatles bootleg, and then they they bought a uh, Wings bootleg for themselves, for their own collection. Um, we'd been to see Wings at the forum. They had snuck me in to see Palm Garden and Wings because they couldn't afford um, more than two tickets, so... Uh, I had to pretend like I was a a baby asleep so they could sneak me in to sit in the rafters to be at Paul McCartney. Anyway, so that place got busted for bootleg records. There were no more bootleg records. We went back to Apollo Electronics. They're like, sorry, no more. And then a neighbor up the street, the same guy said, oh, well, there's another store. They have them. It's in Westwood. It's called Rhino Records. It's the first time I ever heard about Rhino Records. And I went over there. And I bought a bootleg called Watching Rainbows from them. And then I started going there regularly looking for records. And that became a a place that really informed me through my life. And I got to know people who worked there. And then I eventually worked there when I was 17. uh, And I got to know about the label and and whatnot. And people like Gary Stewart and and, uh, Harold Bronson. And what I didn't know at the time that I found out later on was the guy who had the Concession to bring the bootlegs into Apollo Electronics was Richard Foos, the founder of Rhino Records. So basically, I had followed these breadcrumbs from one place to another looking for these Beatles bootlegs, and then I ended up spending a good portion of my life working for the company that he founded. And I've subsequently become, you know, uh, friendly with him too over the years. So it's it's a weird story, but uh, the Beatles and the thirst and quest to hear unusual Beatles material. You know, got me over to Rhino, and then ultimately, you know, I ended up at the label and doing reissues and stuff.
0: There, there's a little bit I do on the show here called the the quick fire questions, which the questions themselves are quick. The answers are almost always not. Okay. So I, I'm going to hit you with a few of them. What is your favorite Beatle album? The UK Hard Day's Night.
1: Could you explain why? Uh, I just think that it's got so much power and energy. I, you know, I, I've obviously vacillated and been in the mode of, of the, you know, Rubber Soul and Revolver are, are, are great albums as well. But there's a vitality and energy and an innocence to Hard Day's Night, but also exhibiting their amazing songwriting. I sometimes these days go more towards like the BBC Beatles era or the Hamburg era Beatles because there's something so exciting about it. And I feel like a lot of that music has been passed over by people now. They're gravitating towards like the White Album and Abbey Road, which I love the songs off those albums too. But I feel like the early Beatles has something um, a vitality to it that is missing um, later on as they get more creative and and more adult. I, there's something about the early Beatles, uh, and I think that that's the last real point. I mean, the next album on Beatles for Sale, which a lot of people don't like as much, but I think is great. You know, it has more adult stuff like no reply, uh, I don't want to spoil the party, things like that. They're getting more, you know. Thank you for I'm defending lo- Beatles for Sale. I'm a loser, all that stuff. You know, it's more adult stuff, which I love too. But Hard Days Night is the last gasp of them as a full on beat group. Although Beatles for Sale definitely a lot of covers, and you know, sort of, you know, a, a, a little farewell. So
0: on the flip side of that question, what is your least favorite Beatles
1: album? Probably Let It Be. Um, yes. I, I feel as though I don't listen to it as much. Um, you know, I hate people who say their least favorite is Please Please Me. I'm like, there's so much to I love d- about Please Please Me. I
0: don't understand them either.
1: <laughs> this is, you know, that's a record made in a day, and it sounds, it's it's great. There's so many good performances on it, but... There's nothing wrong with let it be. It's like you know your least favorite part of the best meal you've ever had. I I yeah. I, I don't know, but it is. By At the least. end of the day, it's
0: still a Beatles album. Yes,
1: and a good one, and a good one, but amazing. No. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, what's your favorite Beatles song? If you're able to pick one,
1: It's a tough one, but um, it's possibly hey jude because hey jude was a song when i first got into the beatles and and was getting 45s and stuff like that and in getting the 45 of hey jude and looking at the label and seeing it was seven minutes and 11 seconds i'm not sure if that's accurate but that's been emblazoned in my mind all these years and when i was first experiencing music i had my i had this turntable that was a mickey mouse literally a Mickey Mouse turntable. You can look it up online. They made my mom, that same turntable, (laughs) but I was playing the records and the energy and love that I was getting from these records. um, I, I mean, I know that that's very hippy dippy, but it's like the love I was getting from the records was something I wasn't getting anywhere else. And it took a long time for me to understand that the love was like two minutes, two and a half minutes or three and a half minutes and then that there would be like this thing like with Hey Jude where you get this extended thing and even though Hey Jude is very overplayed and stuff like that in in society and all that there's something incredibly emotional and perfect about it it doesn't it hits me in a different way than let it be or long and winding road which don't affect me I, I don't i can't go into the emotional place where paul is for those songs but with hey jude there's there's a certain thing, but I also think 1968 for me is a, is an interesting year. I like 1965 and I like 1968. Um, I like the innocence of where things are going in 65. They're just turning to get very adult and sophisticated. And then in 68, things have gone full bloom and they're kind of coming back to being more naturalistic with the white album, village green, all all these people going kind of back to uh, more acoustic pastoral bucolic all these all these tones that i really like so um there there's a there's a grand grandiose nature to hey jude but there's also a simplicity to it and i think it strikes the perfect balance uh and you know it's the perfect length even though i don't like long songs just like how could this be you know
0: and i figure uh I guess you might be able to figure out what the next question is.
1: What what's, what's your the least shortest Beatles song you like?
0: What? <laughs> what
1: is your least favorite Beatles song? Yeah, I you know I don't I don't think I have a least favorite. I, I mean uh I, I honestly, you know, I like Mr. Moonlight. I, I, I watched a video recently, I was, you know, just trying to like zone out on something and relax. And they had this video. Somebody made the least popular songs uh, of the Beatles on Spotify. I was like, you're kidding. You can't do that's on that list. You know, I was like going down, going down. I was like, when are they going to have Mr. Moonlight? I know everybody hates that one, but I, I like, I like all that stuff. You know, I, I don't have a, I don't have a least favorite. Um, there's certainly you, stuff. You can always
0: of- make up an answer. <laughs>
1: There's certainly stuff off of Let It Be and Abbey Road I don't get through as much, um, but uh, but no.
0: Fair enough. And uh, since you're a very special man, I'm going to extend the quick fires to a couple other groups. Okay. What is your favorite Kinks album?
1: Village Green Preservation Society.
0: What is your favorite Zombies album?
1: Well, that's easy because there's really only one real zombies. Album. I, I don't, think I, I begin realize here is, that as the words left my mouth. <laughs> well, like everybody else, Odyssey and Oracle, but I think begin here is not really a solid album and it's disappointing. They don't, you know, have that mid period. I mean, I love you is, is the closest to it and that's not a real album in my opinion, but, but um, you know, I love Odyssey and Oracle. I love the zombies, you know, discovery of the zombies. It's like you're discovering a band that made only perfect records. I mean, Yes, you could say my least favorite Zombies record is Roadrunner. Or, you know, uh, I, I love Sticks and Stones. I think Roadrunner is probably the most laughable of their R&B excursions. But everything else they did is pretty much perfect. What's your favorite Bee Gees album? Odessa. And that uh, that's that's one that I got into and I got really deep into. I grew up with, uh, in my household, they had Bee Gees first and they had the best of the Bee Gees, which is the orangey yellow cover one. Yeah.
0: The one at so on Atco, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I knew those records growing up, but I, I didn't, ha, didn't hear horizontal or idea or Odessa until, um, the later eighties. And I just loved those. And Odessa, I didn't love immediately, but I spent so much time trying to love it that I really loved it after I heard it a billion times. And, uh, the reissue of that for Rhino is probably one of my proudest uh, achievements. Getting that out the way I wanted it to, um, with a lot of problems because the company didn't want to put it out, and uh, Barry Gibb didn't really want to put it out. So, um, so there were there were lots of issues there, but it doesn't take away from how much I love it. But when the record was out, and one of my last things when I would left Rhino actually been. Uh, laid off from Rhino. I shouldn't say I left them like it was my choice. But uh, this was, you know, not the end of my relationship with, with Rhino, but the beginning of of a new chapter with them. And there is always another new chapter with them. I went backstage to Dancing with the Stars where Barry and Robin were guests. And I brought my poster, which I'm looking at above my head here, uh, from Odessa, from the, the CD box. And I, I went to go get it autographed as... A f- more a fan than as the guy who put together. And I I went to Barry and I said, well, I just, it would mean a lot to me if you would sign this for me because this album is my favorite of yours. And he goes, a lot of people say that to me. A lot of people say that about Odessa, but you know what? All this record means to me, bad times. A lot of bad feelings, a lot of bad times. And I I listened to him and I was like, you know what, I get it. Your family's breaking up. Discord with your brother. Your brother's in, in trouble. Robin's in trouble. You know. I mean, I take you know. I just listen to it as a record, and I'm loving yeah. the songs. And I'm loving that it's so eccentric in such a Bee Gees way. It's it, to me, it's not a pastiche of the Beatles. It's like the Bee Gees as Bee Gees esque as you can get. In this first stage of their of their careers. But to him, it meant you know a lot of bad times i get it
0: and i think the 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 final thing i i want to ask you and i've been dying to hear more information about this and i don't know how much you're allowed to tell at this stage but i've been reading about this new bonzo dog doodah band box set that you are involved with
1: yes What I can say is, I I think that there's been some announcement. I think there was in maybe Mojo or something. So um, I I
0: read about it in Mojo.
1: Maybe they said it was about 20 CDs or 20 discs, rather. There's, um, I think there's about 15 or 16 um, audio discs and maybe four DVDs. That number don't hold us to it, um, but I'm thinking it's in that range. And I've been working on the audio end of it. and uh with a lot of really talented people and there's there's great stuff on the dvds as well which i have not personally seen to be honest but audio wise you get all of the original albums both mono and stereo mixes of the first two albums gorilla and the donut and granny's greenhouse um all from the original masters all newly mastered which in this case i think is a real benefit to them because when they were done the last time in 2007 the outlook on how they were mastered was more a lot of no noise, a lot of the uh, hard upper mids and stuff like that. And I went back to having known the record so long to try and have them be a little bit more dynamic and closer to the original records. What I did was I brought out all my UK pressings and I matched the tapes to them, both in speed and the lengths between even the silences between the songs are exact to the original UK pressings, which... When you get files and 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 stuff like that, I was working on files from abbey road they're they're not exact. You have to do that work if you want that experience and I found stuff like tadpoles um every reissue of it there's one drum hit that's missing from the beginning of Monster mesh. Now, I didn't know that until I lined it up against my file from the album, but you know i but that was the thing that I figured out, and also the transition between Monster mesh into Urban Spaceman has been truncated over the years in on on some tapes. So I managed to put that back together. Um, And then there's a load of outtakes. Um, There's two discs of studio outtakes and alternate mixes and things like that. And there's a whole disc of backing tracks um, uh, that, that uh, are of, of finished things. Then there's, I think three CDs worth of BBC recordings and, um, there's loads, there's interviews, there's live stuff, some of the bootleg stuff that's been around on the Fillmore and stuff that's on there. Um, it's really a dream project. It's really an incredible thing, and there's just so much of everything. So I think even if you have everything by the Bonzos, you don't have everything. So, And that's even the people who are the completists who are working on this thing. There's stuff that they didn't have. I was given access to a lot of multitracks, um from the people at, um, well, it's Warner Music now that controls it. But oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I got I got to go through a bunch of multi-tracks and do new mixes of things and some amazing stuff. It's hard to
0: keep track of who owns who now.
1: Yeah, a lot of stuff has shifted around. That used to be kind of my forte of knowing who owned all the stuff. But now, you know, it's almost all owned by Universal in some way. Uh, yeah. Or they they have the tapes, but they're controlled by somebody else and they're vaulted somewhere. Stuff has really changed. It used to be like I could go into a vault and actually look for stuff and do projects, researching things, looking at rows of tapes and finding stuff and learning stuff. And now there's just no way security-wise that they allow that kind of stuff. And also a lot of the companies have been enticed to put stuff into long-term storage, so it costs money to retrieve anything or or do anything. It's like the Roach Motel. Everything checks in, but it never checks out. And then you know, if you can't find a tape, it's just gone. There's just no recourse. It's not like, well, you can go in and look for it by hand, which I used to do. That just doesn't work that way. And the audience is no longer there in the same way because of streaming and other things. There's diminished money to do all of that sort of work, you know, to look for stuff and, and build projects off of it. People love having the free music, uh, and they don't understand why certain things have gotten more expensive and all of that. So it's just, you know, it's interesting. It's been a... It's been a great period of 30 years for me, but I'm now seeing, like, I have to move on to other things in my life. And um, I started this book company. I did the book on the monkeys that came out uh, this last year and sold out. And people were like, well, you're in business to sell books. Why aren't you making more books for me right now? Well, Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Well, you know, if you can't get paper towels in the store, you, you can't get monkeys books either. So – um, it's going to be a while before there's any more monkeys books, uh, out there in the world. And also the, the initial ones were a limited edition, but I have a new book, uh, that I'm getting started working on in the next few days. Uh, that's monkeys related. that i will be talking about, um, into the next year. And I plan to do more books, but if you want a copy of my monkeys book, it's going to be a long wait, unless you want to pay an exorbitant amount of money on eBay where there, I look today and there are a bunch on there and people will be happy to take your money from you, but it won't be me. And, uh, just throwing it over to you for the end. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Um, I've got a radio show all about the sixties. Come to the sunshine. (laughs) Come to the sunshine. And that's on Mondays, uh, from WFMU's rock and soul, uh, radio stream. And, And that's been going for 15 years now. And I have been out, um, looking for records in the last few months. I was on tour with the monkeys for several months And I was just in London and also in Holland. And in all those places, I I came across a lot of 45s of interesting stuff. So I've got uh, new episodes rolling out and old episodes rolling in. And I keep looking for uh, stuff to share with people. And and that continues.
0: Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I've had a blast.
1: My pleasure. I think we probably just scratched the surface of what you're interested in and maybe you know, you'll think of a zillion questions. Hey, but leaves room for a part two. That's right. That's right. There's always a sequel. <laughs> to everyone
0: else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Bands on the Run is produced by Ethan
1: Alexander, voiceovers by Richard A. This has been a Showtown production.